I'll say good morning to you once again. Welcome, welcome. Glad that you're here. We are um, getting close to the end of our long series on the book of Exodus. And of course, today is a special day in the life of Redemption Church. It's our 10th anniversary um, in this building. In our, in our society, it is a liturgical holiday, which is the first day of the NFL, which is why nobody is here. And, and in light of this, our story for today is the story of the golden calf. So make of that what you will. Um, the, so uh, we, we talked about last week the tabernacle. And really the tabernacle, the building and, and advice about the tabernacle makes up the, the last third of the book of Exodus. And so sandwiched in between this long description of how it should go and this long description of them building it is this strange story of the golden calf. If you remember from last week, the, the tabernacle was where um, the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark was made with this solid gold top, the kapora on it, with these two cherubim with wings outstretched, forming this throne for Yahweh to sit upon, the invisible God. And this was kind of a representation of the cosmos, uh, um, Yahweh's, enthroned above the ark, sitting there um, on the cherubim's throne with his feet on the ark. And this is like a microcosm, a mini cosmos of God enthroned on the heavens with, with the earth as God's footstool. And there in the Holy of Holies, God promised to allow God's presence to just dwell with um, with the people, not in the ark um, and, and not in the form of the cherubim, but in, in the space. God would inhabit the space above the ark. And then God would be kind of nested then in between these layers. So above the, the, the ark in the, in the mercy seat and then inside the holy of holies and then within the tabernacle, then within the outer courts where the sacrifice and confession would happen, which is in the center of the camp. And so there's this, these circles of kind of righteousness or, or holiness or reverence. And what God promises, instead of just appearing to, you know, patriarchs at critical moments, God would appear all the time, ordinary times to, to everyone. And God would just stay with them wherever they would go. And this was going to happen because of this mishkan, this tabernacle. And it was meant to carve out some sacred space, even out there in the middle of the desert, this space above the ark that God would inhabit. So after God gave Moses this plan, Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God on Sinai, and he's gone for 40 days. And chapter 32, as we read before, begins like this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make a God who shall go before us. For that man Moses, who brought us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. This, this phrase, um, gathered against Aaron, nikal al, um, in Hebrew, it's kind of, it carries this menacing nuance to it. They're intimidating him. And they also say, that man, Moses, which is kind of phrased disrespectfully. They think maybe he's not coming back. And so they say, come make us a God who shall go before us, which seems like a straightforward case of idolatry. But we're going we're gonna to complicate the case a little bit today, hopefully. Because Jewish interpreters are very sensitive um, to what they see as a shallow Christian reading of this passage. And, and they think it's honestly demeaning to the Hebrew people, as though they're just a bunch of dumb rubes who fresh off these incredible miracles and revelations of God just decide to chuck everything and go worship a bunch of idols. 
and, and just immediately go shopping for a, a, a new God. Like, it's no big deal. This, this offends the rabbis. They're very touchy about this, especially when this story is, is used as a way to discount the law as completely worthless. So, so the rabbis ask the Christian readers to slow down and pay attention to what the text actually says because there's more going on here than we might think. The only problem is the case that they make is a little bit complicated. It just is. It, it, it took me a while to, to understand it, if I do. And um, I didn't grow up in that tradition, so it's a little weird for me. But their reading of this text fascinated me. And so I want to try to walk us through it. But you got to, like, put your thinking caps on. Everybody ready for this? Do we need to do jumping jacks or something? Or can you, because it, it might, I don't want to bore you. I almost didn't do this. I don't want it to be boring, but I just think, I mean, I'm never bored by this stuff. I love it, but you pay me to love it. So I'll try to see if I can help you love it today. But it might be a challenge. So if you need to, like, stand up or slap yourself, um, yeah, maybe don't slap yourself, but just try to stay away. So the first question the rabbis ask is, what's the problem in the story? Moses has disappeared up at Sinai, but what's the problem with that? He's gone up there before. He's been up there a while, but they're apparently starting to think he's not coming back. He's either deserted them, or maybe they're thinking he's 80, might have, you know, croaked up there on the mountain. No offense to anybody who's older than me or whatever, but whatever happened, they've lost confidence. They're like, where is our leader? And so the problem is Moses, Moses is gone, and they want a replacement. So in rough terms, that's what's happening. So then the question becomes, well, what was Moses doing that they need replaced? What's the role that Moses played for them? He doesn't give big speeches, remember? He's... He stutters. He's not ambitious. He's not some great military leader. The role that Moses plays was Moses was the link between the people and God. He was the conduit of God's miracles and power. Anytime something miraculous happened to them, Moses was right there in the middle of it. And now with Moses gone, they need a way to reestablish that link with God because they're afraid if they don't have that, they might not survive out here in the wilderness. So so this is where they begin, the rabbis. See, the, the problem is Moses is missing, and the role that Moses played was he was the link between the people and Yahweh. And so they need to find a, a replacement to reestablish that link to Yahweh, or they're going to perish out there in the desert. Everybody with me so far? All right. Um, now's where it gets kind of weird, because if they're trying to replace Moses, why do they ask for a god? Did they think Moses was a god? Which seems unlikely. Plus, they just said right here, that man, Moses, they name him a man, not a god. Plus, they already had a god. They had just made this big deal out of having a covenant with this god. And this is where the rabbis insist that we Gentiles get a little bit tripped up. Um, because we don't know the language and the tradition and the symbols. And so it's easy to think they just panicked and started worshiping other gods. How many of you would say that's kind of how you grew up understanding this text? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the classic reading. And there are, there are many problems with that interpretation, mostly because they kind of let us off the hook. We just go, I'm not an idol worshiper, so, so this is them, this is their problem. But the rabbis are like, nope, everybody's on the hook for this one, which I, I think is good. So the, the first problem that that presents is a language problem hinging on the definition of this word Elohim. Say Elohim. Elohim. 
Elohim. Okay, so we, you've probably heard this before. In verse 1, it says the people. And here, when it, in this verse, when it says the people, that means the children of Israel as a whole. They come to Aaron and say, come make for us an Elohim that will go before us. Usually translated God. Usually small g, sometimes big g, often for, for, the, for Yahweh. However, this word Elohim does not mean God, strictly speaking. Elohim um, is is a more general term for someone with authority, power, and just kind of general awesomeness. Um, so I'm thinking of Patrick Mahomes. I don't know why, but just this, this is Elohim. So that, that would be idolatry, though. So we don't want to go there. But of course, since it's like general awesomeness and power and authority, it's often used as a representative name for God, like 90% of the time, that's what it is. But sometimes it's used for someone else, one of God's representatives who is, who is kind of great in, in stature. So angels, maybe, rulers, magistrates, judges, prophets, someone who plays a critical role. They're sometimes called Elohim in the scriptures. And it's, it's almost like the word Lord in medieval Europe. So it could be God or it could be your master or, or a judge, my lord, something like that, or a king. So, so they could be asking for a new god, Elohim. But literally in Hebrew, they're asking for Elohim, which could be more than one thing. And there might be good reason to suspect that they're asking for not a new god, but a new Moses, a new link to the divine. But if we're going to go that way, there probably needs to be a little more evidence in the text. So, um, for instance, we could ask, as the rabbis do, um, is there, was there ever a time when Moses was called Elohim before this? And in fact, there is. If you remember the burning bush um, story where um, Moses going, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And he has all these objections. And God's like, I, I'm going to send your brother Aaron. He is going to speak for you. And he says this, Exodus 4.16. God says, he indeed, Aaron indeed, shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as a God for him. The word there is Elohim. God names Moses an Elohim for, for Aaron and the people. And so this is, this is Yahweh calling Moses an Elohim. Now, I don't think Aaron thought his little brother was a God, right? That seems unlikely for any little brother, big brother duo, but especially this one. He thinks Moses is the link to the divine. An Elohim. Now, as Christians, we're, we're very used to reading the scripture in sort of chopped up ways, almost as disconnected vignettes. But the Jewish people see everything as connected. And these two Elohims, for them, they interpret one another. So if you have Yahweh calling Moses an Elohim, Aaron's Elohim in chapter 4, then Moses disappearing, and then the people calling to Aaron for a new Elohim in 32, we should pay attention to the connection between those two Elohims. The, the children of Israel might not be looking for a new God, new gods, like they're leaving, a new religion, leaving Yahweh. They might be looking for a new link when they say we need a new Elohim, like Moses. And this is how most of the rabbis read it. And, and when I got into it a little deeper, a lot of the Old Testament scholars that are Christians interpret the golden calf incident in this way. Let, let's read on and see if we can make... Um, a little more sense of this. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and daughters, and bring them to me. Um, it's funny, a bunch of rabbis um, proposed that the whole reason um, 
Aaron does this is because he didn't think they would give them, and he was trying to buy some time for Moses to get back, which is kind of funny. We don't know what the rings are, if they were like a symbol of slavery in Egypt. We have, we have no, no idea. But it, whatever, if Aaron was calculating that, he was mistaken because all the people, it says, took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, this, this complicates things, obviously, a little bit. This verse is crucial because on the surface, it seems as though they made this molten calf and they call it a God and then credit it with being the God who brought them out of Egypt, even though they just, just, just made it, right? And this is where the rabbis get a real serious burr under their saddle, Right? Uh, many of them, like, they'll go on for four or five minutes in their teachings about this. In fact, there's this one really famous one, the Rosh Baum, an important rabbi. He says, literally, Israel could not have been so stupid. That's, that's a quote from, this is like, mid, he's a medieval scholar. This is old, old, thousand years old. They couldn't have been so stupid so, to, to, to believe that a statue that they just made is the God who brought them out of Egypt. And they get really offended by the suggestion uh, that this is what, how, how dumb they were. And they point us to some critical things in the text. First of all, to look at who's asking the question. And second of all, to know a little bit about history and the symbolic meaning of these golden calves or bulls or oxen. So the first question, who's speaking in this section? They have a theory. You do not have to buy this theory. Um, I don't know if I do, sometimes I do, but um, it would be cool if it's real, but you do not have to buy this. It's just so interesting, I had to leave it in. So um, the, who is speaking in this section? The rabbis insist that the they here is different from, from before. It's not the children of Israel. Because of the syntax in the Hebrew, because they say, this is your God, O Israel, as though they're speaking as outsiders to the thing. And so they're like, well, who could it be? And they point to Exodus 12, remember, they're always connecting things. They point to Exodus 12, 38, where it describes everyone who left Egypt. If you remember, there's like 600,000 people and all the flocks and herds and goats and calves. And, and then reading from the Orthodox Jewish Bible, it says, and an Erev Rav, a mixed multitude, a mixed company that was large, went along also with them. And so this, this mixed multitude were likely foreigners living in Egypt, other slaves, Slaves, maybe. Some, maybe some Egyptian fugitives who had to run off and live in Goshen. But they all left Egypt with the Hebrew people, sort of like fellow travelers, um, the mixed multitude was. Um, probably not, though, really part of the Hebrew people. They just got out while the getting was good. They camped outside the Hebrew camp. They weren't part of the revelation at Sinai or the, the law or the, the covenant. They weren't part of that. They were pagans who worshiped many gods, who the rabbis posit might be the ones who show up here and, and kind of act as a tempting agent. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Like, come on, want to, come on, be pagans again. Don't you want to be, be back in, in, in that whole pagan pack? And, and actually, the term here is not Elohim, it's Elohika, which is plural. So it's more like, these are your gods, O Israel, which kind of also points to a pagan influence of some kind. So most Christian commentaries even at least note this as a possible 
um, reading of the text. But, but it's completely normative in, in the Jewish tradition. For us, it doesn't really matter if you buy this or not. It's just interesting. But um, the biggest question is, what's the meaning of the golden calf? It could be some just generic idol. They just picked, I don't know, somebody who was a bull fan, so they just picked that. Um, it could be the Egyptian god Happy that's portrayed as a bull, but it's usually a person with a bull head. It's, it's hard to know. Um, but here, both Christian and Hebrew scholars agree on this, that we need to consider carefully the way these statues of like golden calves or bulls or oxen would function in ancient society because they had a very particular role in sculpture and even in, in worship. Typically, a statue of a calf or a bull or an ox was not a god. It was a symbol of power and royalty and strength and like virility, fertility even. It was a symbol of those things that they would put other gods on top of riding this thing. And so the calf symboled, oh, this god is super powerful or royal or, or had strength and virility. So, so it was the ride, the pedestal for another god. So, so you'd have a golden ox or calf and then some god riding upon it. It's almost like the turtles that, that carry the earth on there. It was that sort of thing. So there was the god, but then this, this ride they were riding showed how royal and powerful they were. So so it's unlikely even that they saw the calf as a god, one of the gods. Um, the calf was most likely understood as Yahweh's ride. And Yahweh's presence then would be on top of the calf, still a space like, like the ark, left to the imagination. They're above the golden calf. Now, part of why this seems so likely is what happens next in the text. It says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron announced, tomorrow shall be a festival of the Lord. Early the next day, the people offered up burnt offerings and bought, brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink and then rose um, to dance. And that word is, it can mean party, it can mean revelry, it has sexual connotations. They went nuts. They went crazy here. So, so here, Aaron comes to, to the bull scene and announces, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. And there the word is not Elohim, it's Hashem. And Hashem is the word they use as a stand-in because they don't write the name of God. It's circumlocution, just work around. So Hashem is not like Elohim. It can have no other meaning. It only is used for Yahweh 100% of the time, okay? So Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a festival to Hashem, to the Lord, to Yahweh. So this festival is in honor of Yahweh. They're, they're, so they're not worshiping the golden calf they're using the golden calf to worship Yahweh, which is, by the way, a huge no-no. Like, you still don't get to do that. It sounds a little better at first. It's almost actually kind of worse because they're proving they still don't trust in Yahweh. Even though they've seen God's power, they still feel this need to take these cultural things and prop up Yahweh and go, look, see how powerful he is, right? And they're kind of taking things into their own hands. And really, what happens is the calf becomes a substitute for what the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be. So instead of God appearing above the Ark in that space, they want God to appear above this golden calf. And the golden calf is it's a graven image. It's a violation of 
the Ten Commandments. Remember, at this point, though, they only had the plans for the tabernacle and the ark. It wasn't built yet. And so for now, Moses was still their link, but now Moses is, is gone. They don't know if he's ever coming back. And so they take matters into their own hands, and they, they build this golden calf or bull or ox, and it's kind of a Moses substitute or a, a graven image instead of the Ark of the Covenant, which is what God asked them to make. And, and so the bull isn't really, strictly speaking, a new God. It is an idol. It is an image, but it's not a new God. It's kind of their new link to God, but one which God has not authorized and one which God does not excuse. It's an idol in place of an ark. One scholar um, says it this way. He said, just as the tabernacle expressed God's longing to be close to his people, so the golden calf reflects the people's yearning to be close to their God. The people have no interest in forsaking Yahweh for other gods. It is just that they have lost all hope in ever seeing Moses alive again. All contact with God has been lost with him too. So they just make this calf because that's the way the rest of the world does things. And so their actions are seen as by Moses, God, Aaron, Joshua, all the, is a, is a massive failure. An act of both apostasy, like they didn't follow God's prescriptions of, of the, theological, in theological terms, but also idolatry, this graven image. It's a grievous sin, which, by the way, sort of mimics the very first sin with Adam and Eve. We talked about how much the tabernacle goes with the, the garden last week. Remember, God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and teach them the knowledge of good and evil. But then they're tempted by this outsider, the serpent. And instead of waiting on God in patience to grow them up and in reverence, they took things into their own hand. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and everything blows up. And here, it's a similar thing. People of God are out there in the wilderness in the season of disorientation, so God can teach them God's plans for the wise use of the world. This God who sets the terms for creation is trying to grow them up. And instead of waiting on this God, they're tempted by outsiders or the calf, and instead of waiting on God in patience there in the wilderness and then, and then building the tabernacle and the, and the ark, they took things in their own hands and built their own link to God. It's, it's very much a recapitulation of that, that first sin. The Old Testament scholar Terence Fretheim, I always say he's my second favorite Old Testament scholar, which tells you I have a problem because I have a second favorite Old Testament scholar. <laughs> Um, Fretheim says, the, the ironic effect is that the people forfeit the very divine presence they had hoped to bind more closely to themselves. That's what happens. And what, what, the, um, what the rabbis insist upon is we have to sit with the question of, why would they do this? After seeing so much power, why would they do this? Think of the ark, which was supposed to be the, the new link. It's closed, or it, it was enclosed in the Holy of Holies, which is limited access, just one high priest. And it's a place of silence and solitude and reverence. And even inside the tabernacle, the wider tabernacle, and then inside the, the courts of the tabernacle, it can only be approached through confession 
and sacrifice. You have to come make a sacrifice before you can even have the priest go in and pray your prayers up to God for you, right? And, and, and so they're, part of their problem is they don't have the, the patience, the maturity to handle that kind of a patient, slow, reverent approach to God. It's, it reminds me of like Elijah on the, on the mouth of the cave or on the, the mount, on mount Carmel. God is not in the earthquake or the fire or the wind, just in this, the still small voice, in this place of silence and reverence. That's not what they want. They don't want quiet, reverent worship. They want worship to be spectacular, like this big event. They want a bull to ride out in the open and, and prove God's power and royalty. And all it really does is make Yahweh like all the other gods of the day. And so back up on the mountain, God says to Moses, hurry down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted basely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way I enjoin them. Not from me, but from the way. From they, They're turning from the way I, I said. This is like when the wife calls the husband and says, guess what your son did today? That's what God says to, to He's like, your people. If it, was, it would have been my people, it was a good thing. It was a bad thing. But, so Moses begins to intercede. He's trying everything. He flatters God. You're a reasonable God. Um, he, he incites jealousy. What are they going to think of you back in Egypt if you kill all these guys? He appeals to God's honor. Like you promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Finally, after Moses is begging, God relents and says, okay, I'm not going to destroy him. But Moses comes down, meets Joshua halfway. I love this part. Kristen just read. And they can hear the party. And Joshua goes, you hear that sound? That sounds like a war. Only not the good kind of war that you win, like the bad kind of war that you lose. And it's actually then what Moses does is a deeply symbolic move. Sometimes we see it as a little temper tantrum. But in the ancient world, we talked about this last week, if there's a treaty or a covenant, they inscribe it on a tablet, and that's usually placed in a shrine or an ark or a bark if you're in, in um, Egypt. And if that is violated, the offended party goes and gets it and crushes it to dust, breaks it. And so, so that's what Moses is doing when he throws down the tablets and breaks them. Moses is the link to the offended party in this agreement, and so he just destroys the tablets. Moses confronts Aaron. Did you get that part where Aaron made up the story? He's like, I just threw the gold in the fire, and I'll pop this calf. Like, it's come on. So, so Moses destroys the calf, grinds it to dust, dissolves it in water, and makes the people drink it. They have to kind of like choke on their own apostasy. It's so interesting. They ingest their own idolatry, and it has to pass through them and come out the other side as, as human waste, sort of demonstrating the fate of all idols made with human hands. And then he offers them a choice. Whoever is for Hashem, the Lord, he says, come here to me. And he leaves it open to them. And anybody... Willing to repent is fine. Anybody who's not, not so good. Okay, so what do we make of this story and why is it important to see the calf not as a, just like a, another God, but a, a deeper violation of the covenant? And I think actually in light of today being our 10-year um, celebration of being in this building, what comes to mind is what's at stake in our worship. And how tempted we are in our worship here in this room even to try to do something great that's super impressive in, in the eyes of the culture, something spectacular, um, as opposed to something just done in quiet reverence and patience, in silence and confession, with humility 
and gratitude as we ask God for God's presence and provision and blessing and guidance. It's super easy to get caught up in trying to be spectacular in some way because that's how the culture lives. It actually reminds me of, we sort of had a golden calf moment for Redemption Church about 10 years ago when we were looking for a building. We had been renting space. We were living in, a, in a, our own tabernacle, our tent in the wilderness. It was a 20-foot trailer full of gear. It was, it was horrible, and we needed a place. We, need, we just longed to have a neighbor's. And, and, a, and a place where we could leave our stuff and be present um, 24-7. And it really came down to two options. There was this old furniture store. Um, there was a big building. It needed some work, but it was on this busy highway with tons of visibility. I mean, it was a textbook location. If you want to be a big deal, you buy this place because there's people going by all the time. Everyone in town will know who you are. But there were no neighbors. And then there was this, this little dinky place that had been left by a church, bought by a school, and it had about you know, $200,000 of deferred maintenance on the place. It was a wreck. And it was in a neighborhood where everybody who could move out had already moved out. But there were neighbors. And the neighbors were immigrants, mostly. They were people from the margins. And when we, when we compared the two, it was kind of a clear choice. It was like, Door number one, the golden calf, like the church where you can be a big deal. Door number two is this kind of run-down old little neighborhood church. I'd lived here for 10 years. I didn't even know it was here. And the weirdest thing happened. It, it just, none of us had peace about going out there. And none of us could explain why we had peace about coming down here. Um, but it became clear that this is what God was asking us to do. And I'll never forget in the elders meeting, all of us going, just our jaws dropping, like, we're really doing this. This is not the smart play. Like, this is such a dumb choice, it seems like. But it just felt right with us. We literally left rejoicing, thinking, okay, this is right. At that time, there were 45 families in redemption. And they pledged over the next few weeks um, $700,000, 45 families. That, along with some money that we had saved over the seven years, we raised and financed $1.1 million and bought this place. It was manna from heaven. I don't know how. We had no business buying this church. This is now was the name of, if you see the next picture, this is, this is what our capital campaign is. That was one of the nights when we talked about it. We had a little bit of money for renovations, but we had to do a lot of the work ourselves because the building was not in good shape. This next picture is the entryway. When you come in the middle doors and you walk into the office, like the doors with the white on, on the sides, that's, that's what it used to look like. Um, it, it's through the lockers from the, the school there. And, and um, this is, this next one, this is what the atrium looked like out there. They had it all chopped up into to classrooms. And um, then this is, if you go to the next one, this is looking back the other way. That's Nick Subtle through the little, the only opening in the kitchen there. That's, what, that's where our kitchen is now. And um, if you go to the next one, inside it was just like dingy and dark. There's another subtle boy there, Lewis. I'm pretty sure he, Lewis was flipping on him off the lights as fast as he could. <laughs> and so we decided, okay, we'll just do the demolition ourselves. So we started in. You see the ceiling is being torn down. And I don't remember if you guys, a lot of you did, um, took part in this. If you see the next one, all this massive pile of insulation that we took out of that ceiling. I remember the next, um, we did this like on a Saturday, the next day at church, everybody just was standing around itching, <laughs> itching, itching from that. 
And then we started tearing out all the walls in the atrium. That's looking um, from this wall back toward the kitchen. Um, we took everything back to the junction boxes. Um, this one is from out front. Do you guys remember that tile out front? Jim Schmidt, I don't know how much blood he shed, but his legs were just bloody from getting all that tile up. I think they welded it to the floor. Um, but everybody pitched in. You see some of our folks. That was me about 15, 20 pounds ago down there on the left. A lot of our kids took part. I think we filled this dumpster here. I can't remember how many times. There's a di discrepancy. It's either 8 or 11, but it was a lot of times we filled that thing. There were several trips to the emergency room. There was one on that night. Um, it was me, and yes, it was my fault. Um, here's this next picture. I love this. This is where our bathrooms are now. That's what it looked like after we demoed it. And this is the atrium office space here. So that, the, the rock wall, see that thing in the middle? That's where our rock wall was, is. Everything else was just demolished. And then we slowly built it back. This is actually what our, our worship space looked like. You feel like you're at your slideshow at your grandma's. That's totally what I'm going for. Um, this is what the worship space looked like up here. It was a, had a big choir loft. It used to have an organ in the back, big choir loft and, and stage area that we decided to rip out because our, our tradition was to sit in a semicircle. So we had to see each other's faces while we worshiped. And, and our tradition was not to have people up on a big platform above but down on the same level, all of us then sharing in this space, a lot of people coming up all the time to help lead and worship. When we started to do, build, build back, we had one week where we had a worship service. Do you guys remember? Was anybody here on that day when we came back into this space? Yeah, it was a good day. The first time here since we were starting to break it back, you can see the, the next one here is they're putting the studs. And, I mean, you know we were breaking all kinds of city codes, county codes, being in this room on that day. We should, we should not have been there. But we kind of got a glimpse of where this thing was going. We were like, that's where the office is going to be. That's where the conference room is going to be. And then that day we gathered in here to worship, and all, all the kids, we have children's ministry. So they came in, and during worship they all drew pictures on, on the floor. They, they, and our artists jumped in around them and drew around them and made it beautiful. So this whole thing is it's still covered up here under the carpet with the pictures that they drew that day. And we lit candles. And yeah, there's JP. She's an intern. She's an intern right now, a senior, um, for what might someday happen in this place. And then they got it all built. And then it was up to us. We had to paint it and furnish it. And, and it, we had to hustle the last few weeks to get it ready. I mean, people were over here all the time. And it was a lot of, a lot of work, although there was some fun along the way. I, I don't think Michelle got stitches, but that was not safe what Marty was doing. Um, <laughs> and it took some time, but the mess turned into kind of, that's, that's how it looked on, on the very first day. And so it was 10 years ago this week that we first held our, our worship service in this place. And I sometimes wonder how it happened um, because I'm not a very good leader and even worse pastor, probably. Um, how did we manage to, to do this instead of buying the golden calf? And then once we did this, how do we manage not to make this into the golden calf? And um, it's probably not a nice enough building for that, but it could have happened. 
But what I really think it, is that it's just, it's just you guys. It's just who we are. It's in our DNA. That this church is somehow built on what feels to me like just an honest desire to follow Jesus, not to, a desire to be a big deal. Just to gather around the scriptures and let the scriptures define us over and against any rival story that tries to name us. Let, let the story of God seep deep into our bones as we just, instead of trying to be amazing, just try to carve out a little space to meet with God every week. And there, I think there is a, a deep commitment not to chase all that glitters, but just to worship Christ in all things. Think about that phrase. It's to worship Christ in all things. That means all of our life. And, and to do this together each week while being paired with the outcasts of the world, especially our friends who, who don't live in normal homes, and especially the immigrant. To tell the truth about our lives, we call ourselves ragamuffins because we're, we're jacked up in various and interesting ways. And then bearing with one another in love. And of course, it's always a temptation to be spectacular. And we live in a world that really wants us to try to do that or else, if not do that, to at least fight over religion. But I do think, as I look back on 10 years in this building and 18 years as a church, um, I don't know, it feels like we're cultivating a genuine reverence for God. And, and I'm grateful for that. And I know that it comes from you, not from me. And I know that we're a mess sometimes. I'm a mess. We're ragamuffins. But when, when I think of us, when I think of Redemption Church and, and the work that I do here and just the nature of who we are, the word that always comes to mind is beautiful. I think it's beautiful in kind of a Jackson Pollock painting kind of a way. But but beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, and what God is doing in our midst right now, it feels really beautiful to me. Amen? Amen. All right. So I want to say 10 years, we're just getting started. But um, here at this moment, I do, I do feel like I, sh I should say, well done. Well done. Let's stand. And we're going to receive communion now. And we invite anyone who calls on the name of Christ um, to join us at the table. The way that we do it is we'll just be released row by row and you can come forward and um, receive the bread and the cup. And they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or say, I will remember. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he, he did the same thing. He passed it around. And this time he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's talking about this covenant we're talking about in, in Exodus. But this is a new deal, a, a deal where God's not just present in the, in the tabernacle. God's present in, in the, the body and the blood. God is present as we receive him into us, God is present in us. It's unbelievable. That's the new deal, the new covenant. So he said, every time you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, and remember, that's the deal. And so that's what we're going to do now. If you would just join me as we, prayer, as we pray for the cup and the bread.
Lord, we ask your blessing upon this meal and pray that it would be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?